Good morning. It's a lovely summer morning here in Berkeley. Um, not sure, is it supposed to get really hot today? Yeah. So during her talk, uh, Sue Osher's talk in Sashin, came upon the subject of play. And I've been thinking about that further. Uh, and so the, the title uh, of this talk is At Play in the Fields of Zen. I borrowed the title from the, <clears throat> from the title of a novel by the wonderful novelist and Zen teacher Peter Matheson. Uh, a play in the fields of the Lord. Actually, I don't think there's much play in that book. Uh, but here there is. And um, I wanted to start by reading something that was uh, given to me at a uh, resident meeting this Tuesday. We were celebrating uh, Joe Buckner's birthday. Preston's birthday. Preston's birthday. Oh, right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Preston's birthday. Uh, so who wrote those things? You? I wrote them. Oh, I could you? It was Preston's birthday, and it was Joe's check-in. Uh, and he gave a, a little card with a handwritten quotation. And uh, the one that I got was entitled, Playing with the Buddha Ancestors. And it was from uh, uh, it's Dharma Hall Discourse uh, 118 from Dogen's Ehe Goroku. Um, and Dogen says, I tie up the bags of patrol monks and play with them as a ball. Within this bouncing numberless Buddha ancestors appear. I give them to the monastery so they can raise horses and oxen. I tie up the bags of patro monks and play with them as a ball. Within this bouncing numberless Buddha ancestors appear. I keep them, I keep, I keep them to give to the monastery so they can raise horses and oxen. And I realized as I was reading this, uh, was he tying up the bags that were possessions of the uh, patrol monks? Or was he, uh, it felt to me like he was glomming all the patrol monks into a bag and turning them into a ball. Uh, I don't know, actually, does anyone have a thought about that? Alan, what is the adjective before the word monks? Patch robe. Patch. Like me. Uh-huh. Wearing, I'm wearing uh, Sojin Roshi's patch robe, which, uh, which I love. And uh, it just keeps, it keeps getting patched until it actually ends up being more patches than the original material. Uh, And Dogen was, you have two kinds of monks. You have patro monks and brocade monks. Uh, Brocade monks uh, celebrate the the wonderfulness of being a monk, of being a Buddha. The Patro monks s- celebrate the ordinariness of being a Buddha. And uh, Dogen was a Patro monk, as was his teacher Rujing, as was uh, our teacher Sojin. And uh, I appreciate that ordinariness very much. But anyway, this is uh, 
this piece is called Playing with the Buddha Ancestors. So, usually we see Zen as a uh, very, is very serious and arduous and sometimes even punishing. Uh, and we wear these dark robes and often it's practiced in dark rooms and there are long, painful hours of sitting. It doesn't necessarily looked at from that angle looked very playful. Um, but I think it's uh, I'd like to encourage us to pursue a sort of contrarian exploration of what we're doing here uh, of playing. I'll say that the teachers that I've encountered in my life, Sojin, Oichi uh, Suzuki, Shoto Harada Roshi, uh, seeing His Holiness the Dalai Lama, seeing Mahagosananda, uh, and and others, they they all had a very joyful and playful demeanor. And I just am very moved by that. And, you know, I'm trying to get out of my own way to let that playfulness bubble up. And that's what I would encourage in you. Uh, and this is in, in the control chapter of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, uh, Suzuki Roshi says, you know, the best way to control someone is to encourage them to be mischievous. Encourage that playful dimension. I was reading another thing by Suzuki Roshi earlier today, uh, where he talks about um, happiness and suffering. And he's talking about the non-duality of happiness and suffering. That uh, there's happiness within suffering and there's suffering within happiness. And if we pursue one to the exclusion of the other, uh, we're likely to get the other. If you pursue, you know, as the, uh, is it the Declaration of Independence or the, I think the Declaration talks about the pursuit of happiness. Well, if you pursue happiness, you're probably going to uh, run smack up against suffering. Whereas if you, if you engage with suffering, you may find that there's happiness within you. It seems contrarian, but I really encourage you to to explore that. So we see that in, in Sashin, I think. It can be really hard. And in the midst of that difficulty, there's something that lightens and lets go. And we find a kind of freedom and allow that joy to bubble up. So when we're playing, uh, you could look at the same kind of uh, dynamic between playfulness and seriousness. And what I've always said is, um, I felt this for years, even before I came to Zen practice, that uh, 
it's good not to take yourself very seriously, but to take what you do seriously. In other words, to pay a lot of attention to your activity, but not a lot of weight in uh, placed on self, which reminds me of something I was supposed to remind you about. I think Ross sent out a uh, something to the the list at the end of. Uh, Oh, two things I want to remind you about. I'm sorry. A little, a little scattered today. First of all, uh, at the end of this talk, and at the end of every Saturday, we chant the Bodhisattva vows. Uh, so the words are, beings are numberless. I vow to awaken with them. So when you do that, lighten up on the eye and dig in on vow, because that's what's actually important. So, beings are numberless, I vow to awaken with them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. So just kind of downplay the I, and emphasize the activity. Uh, and that's what I'm talking about in terms of taking yourself lightly and taking what you do with a kind of seriousness. The other thing I was supposed to encourage you to do as I'm looking at the screen uh, is if you are able to, please turn on your video. It's it's really nice to see you all, and uh, I know the temptation, there's always a temptation to multitask, and I know that because I can be guilty of that myself. But I just want to encourage you, and some of you, they're actually doing it. Uh, some of you are doing that, which I really appreciate. We should be able to see each other. Uh, so, um, to pursue this question of playing, playing in the fields of Zen, uh, there's a passage which I, I may have actually read not too long ago from uh, Sojin Roshi, uh, from a piece in his upcoming book called The Formal and the Informal. It's commonly thought that Zen practice is very formal and rigid, and that thinking and emotions are cut off. Formal, yes. Rigid, not really. For every activity there are rules, directives, and procedures. The formality of our practice allows access to our ineffable, fundamental, formless nature. What looks like narrow confinement becomes, with maturity, vast freedom. What is formal becomes informal. So when you think of any kind of activity, and I think I said this in the last talk where I was referencing playing, you know, you think of baseball, how many rules there are. It's like, it, you know, if somebody coming from the outside who doesn't, hasn't grown up with it, it's like, They'd have a hard time fathoming it, uh, just as I will admit, I still have absolutely no comprehension of how you play cricket. It's totally a mystery to me. Maybe someone can explain it, but not in the Q&A. Um, but within those rules, we have these extraordinary efforts and performances and we recognize the amazing uh, qualities of athletic qualities uh, and heart of the players. The same thing is true with, with any artistic endeavor. Same thing is true with music. I was thinking about this earlier today. So the music that, that I play is not written down. 
I learn it by, I've learned it by ear. I've learned it by uh, listening very carefully, by paying attention to other musicians, particularly older musicians, live. And there's a form, there are rules to this music. And the more able you are to pay attention, the more able you are to enter those rules and to find freedom within it. And I was thinking about that in relation to classical music, where the notes are actually on the page, right? But they're still, so those are the rules. The rules are the notes on the page. Within that, there's an infinite field of expression. No musician plays the same passage or the same piece. They each play it in their own way. So within the constriction of the actual notes on paper, uh, you have full expression. And this is what Suzuki Roshi was saying. He, he often said, you know, when you're sitting facing the wall, then I can see who you truly are. So when we revealed ourselves, we revealed ourselves in the playing within these rules, within these limitations. And we find, again, as Suzuki Roshi said, he said, we have, we have formal practice with informal mind. So the formal practice is playing within the rules. The informal mind is anything goes. So later in this same piece by Sojin Roshi, he says, the life of a Zen student is mostly improvisation. Improvisation works best within a solid structure or container. It is so in music and the arts. A well-trained <coughs> Zen student feels comfortable within the forms and approaches the activity with gratitude, awareness, and confidence. And he closes his piece to say, formal and informal, they are just two sides of the same thing. My teacher said, even though there is no self, still there are rules. So I'm thinking about improvisation. Uh, I may have talked about this a long time ago. There's a little book that I love that I got from Lori uh, years ago, I think close to when we first met. Uh, it's called uh, Impro, Improvisation and the Theater by uh, a theater teacher uh, named Keith Johnstone. And at one point he came uh, to San Francisco Zen Center and did a workshop. And I think that's where Laurie encountered him. Uh, and he's the, the trainer for many improvisers. I think that uh, Peter Coyote, the actor who's also a Zen teacher in Marin, uh, he trained with Keith Johnstone. A lot of people did. So, um, There's some guidelines that uh, that Keith Johnstone offers, and some principles that I'd like to discuss in the context of how we practice with ourselves and how we practice with others. Uh, first of all, you know, in these three points that he makes, one is that. You can't learn anything without failing. So to, this is how we learn. This is certainly how I've learned almost everything in, in of value by failing again and again and by having the, it's important to have the determination 
and the willingness to fail and just go at it again. I mean, actually the essence of what we do, or I speak for myself, what I do uh, in Zazen, it's sometimes Zen is uh, described as one continuous mistake. Uh, and when we're sitting and facing the wall, you know, sitting and facing the wall, so it's very upright and I'm paying attention to my breath and very single-minded, you know, and then my posture collapses, uh, failure. Uh, or I'm sitting here very mindfully attending to the flow of my breath and then thinking, what am I going to have for lunch? It's a failure. So the opportunity of the failure, if you're playing with failure, is to begin again. To begin again and again. To return to our intention and not to get caught on the failure, but just to use that as a reminder to renew ourselves, to remember where we are, to recollect ourselves, which is actually literal translation of the word that we usually translate as mindfulness. So we fail again and again. There's another expression of John Stone's that is actually in contradiction to uh, what I was talking about a few weeks ago. We talked about, uh, it, I used the Japanese expression, ganbate. People remember, yeah, we talked about that. And it seemed to resonate with people. And it does. It translates, that translates as, do your best. And it's an encouragement. So that's one side. Johnstone presents the other side, which is, please don't do your best. <laughs> trying to do your best is trying to be better than who you are. That's pretty interesting. Uh, who are, but what he's exploring is, who are you right now in the situation, in your meeting of yourself or your meeting of others? Who are you rather than positing some idealized version of you and kind of dismissing the present reality for some you could say, gaining idea. So we live with this. This is a great tension. And this is one of the things that I love about Zen practice is uh, what we're really learning to do is to live and accept that we live in the midst of contradiction. You know, yes, there's a message. Please do your best. And then there's always the other side, which is, please don't try to do your best. Be where you are right now. And those two messages, the vector of those two messages, meet in oneself. The third thing that... Um, Johnston talks about, and I want to speak about this more in a bit more detail, is um, it's not the offer, but it's what you can do with it. So um, Johnston writes, there are people who prefer to say yes, and there are people who prefer to say no.
Those who say yes are rewarded by the adventures they have. And those who say no are rewarded by the safety they attain. There are far more no-sayers around than yes-sayers, but you can train one type to behave like another. He writes about another teacher, Fred Carno understood this. When he was interviewing aspiring actors, he'd poke his pen into an empty inkwell and pretend to flick it at them. If they mimed being hit in the eye, or whatever, he'd engage them. If, he looked, if they looked baffled and blocked him, then he wouldn't. So this is another one of these dynamics of playfulness that we, we have to reckon with. And we have to reckon with it in ourselves and in the context of our relationship with all of those around us, our friends, our families, our teachers, or anyone that you meet in the street. Uh, says the motto of scared improvisers, and he's speaking, he's training improvisers, is when in doubt, say no. We use this in life as a kind of blocking action. I call anything that an actor does an offer. Each offer can either be accepted or blocked. If you yawn, if you yawn, your partner can yawn too, and therefore accept your offer. A block is anything that prevents the action from developing or that wipes out your partner's premise. If it develops action, it isn't a block. So this is why the essential message for a Zen student is to say yes. When Sojin Roshi would be in his office, somebody would knock on his door and he would say, Hi! Yes, in Japanese. Uh, and allow them to come in. Uh, he would never say, Go away, I'm busy now. He might have thought that. But his practice was to say yes. And that's a really great model. Our practice, when asked something as a, as a student or as a friend, can we say yes? It's important to recognize that if we say yes, then we have the grounds to play together. If we say no, then we've created a, we've created a block and we will separate. We will go in our own respective directions. So this is a good general principle. It's not an absolute. Yes is not always the creative or necessary response. Sometimes there are things that we have to say no to. And we have to decide that, and we have to recognize what the consequences of that might be. But still, we've made some discernment. But generally, yes. So if we say yes to our suffering, then we create a ground for some happiness to arise. And if we say yes to happiness, we accept the fact that there's some suffering incumbent with that happiness. So we're saying, we're saying yes to the whole package. And this is this is really useful information for 
how we respond to ourselves and each other. Uh, and it means we can play. There's usually no play left when you say no. When you lock yourself down because you may have some idea of what you're supposed to be doing or what you're not supposed to be doing then you've shut off this creative aspect you know this aspect of what Sojin Roche was talking about is uh, the improvisatory aspect of uh, of our practice so keep that can we keep that fresh you know we've just to say it's not always been easy uh, but we've spent three and four years having to say yes and figuring out really difficult circumstances and trying to change flow in appropriate ways with these circumstances that we never would have chosen. And at least from my perspective, I feel like we've really grown as a community. There are new people. There's a feeling of commitment. There's this, this sustainability of our of our community and we did that by saying yes you know yes this is not fun yes it's not fun wearing masks uh, or asking that people be uh, fully vaccinated or uh, having to let go of our full schedule or our Oriochi meals in the Zendo. Uh, but we said yes to them because we want because we wanted to keep playing together. And we've done that. And we we continue to do that. And now I will say so we're beginning to have we're we're hoping that there will be and unmasking within the next month or two. Uh, you know, finally take off these Frischlugana things on our faces. Um, Frischlugana, that's, that's Japanese. Um, uh, and also thinking about how we can bring back, say, how can we bring back the full Saturday program? How can we bring back Oriyoki meals? Uh, how can we continue playing by actually training new cooks? Because we need new cooks, because a lot of the people who were cooking four years ago, quite a number of them are gone. Uh, you know, they've, uh, some of us are getting too old to stand up in the kitchen all day, you know, but, uh, as a community, we're continuing to play together. So, um, let me read you again, and then we'll go into Q&A. Let me read you again what, uh, a couple things from this talk by Sojin. The life of a Zen student is mostly improvisation. Improvisation works best within a solid structure or container. It is so in music and the arts. A well-trained Zen student feels comfortable within the forms and approaches the activity with gratitude, awareness, and confidence. Uh, to have a cool head while sitting Zazen is to think the thought of Zazen. 
the nature of thinking is to, is to think or to dream. It doesn't make any difference what is thinking as long as it can do its thing. I'm sorry, it doesn't make any difference what it is thinking as long as it can do its thing. The point is, who is the boss of the thinking? Formal or informal, they are just two sides of the same thing. My teacher said, even though there is no self, still there are rules. And I would say, even though there are rules, we're still playing. So I'm going to stop there and uh, leave some time for questions and comments. I'd like to encourage you, if you, if you have a, a question, uh, try to get pretty effectively to the question without a lot of preamble. And if you have a comment, please make it brief so that we have room for, for people to speak, people online and people uh, here in the Zendo. And to, who is passing around? I am. You are, okay. We have a microphone. We have a microphone. Okay, so uh, please raise your hand if there's something you would like to ask or say. A couple back there. description the very beginning coming from Tibetan tradition my perception was exactly what you said uh, very serious very formal people in dark covers uh, failing I'd be turning the wrong way bumping into people uh, and then with time the forms didn't become, didn't bring up insecurity. They became kind of pleasurable. And once we started eating outside or having the teas, I could see that people themselves were playful. But what you said was really helpful for me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, also, we have to, that, that state of confusion uh, that you referenced of not knowing which way to turn, etc., all of that is also, that's being able to play with beginner's mind. It's like, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know. So we have a, we have the method of learning the forms is inductive rather than deductive. <coughs> We don't give out an instruction sheet to everybody when they come to the Zendo. We actually invite them to observe and absorb the forms in your body and to appreciate that state of not knowing. That's a really important, that's an important state because there's so much in our life that we encounter that we really don't know what's going to happen. And do we have the capacity to include that uh, and be open to it? So, thank you. It's too, uh, yeah, Preston. So, there's yes and there's no. How about maybe and maybe? What was it? May being? Yeah. What? You, you have to... Play on words. May being. I know, I know. To play on words. I'm not sure what you're... So you were talking about yes as a way of uh, accepting our situation uh, and playing with people. Um, how about maybe, which feels to me either in between well, yes and no, or outside of yes and no. For me, the word maybe is 
uh, in some cases, more playful. Yeah. Uh, it's a children's song that I used to do with my friend Jerry Kenny, uh, which said, no, 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 I won't do it. No, 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 I won't, I won't do it. And uh, Yes, 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 I, I think I can. And then maybe, 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 maybe I can't make up my mind. You know, uh, all of that can be folded into the realm of play. So even no doesn't have to be an absolute. No can offer another option. And no and maybe and yes all depend upon a kind of negotiation uh, that's possible with someone else. So if you say maybe, it's like, okay, just what I did. It's like, what do you mean by that? Which actually opens up a dialogue, right? And so maybe can open up a dialogue. Thanks. Peter? Forgive the uh, further play on words, but um, I've been trying to relate to what you said about improv it being the initial uh, contact is sort of like an offering. Yes. And it seems like that could also be a request. It could be, uh, and in a request, one way of looking at that is that it's never the end. Right. It's only, it's only the beginning of the conversation. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I, it it is a request. So sometimes in some language, uh, you can refer to this as an offering or it's a bid. Yeah. And a bid has calls for a response. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you can do that, then you're kind of off to the races and you're you're playing together. Yeah. Uh, so you play and it just leaves things open for further unfolding of what's going on. Right. Uh, and we take this, I think, in our practice, it's it's the play of our lifetime. And now we're seeing it, you know, particularly as we're getting older and we're seeing uh, limitations that may arise or uh, abilities that disappear and how do we continue to play together. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Joel? You're very muddy. Yeah, well, is that any better? Yeah, now it's a little loud. Let me turn it down. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you. Beautiful talk. Uh, you mentioned improvisation and classical improvisation, so I thought I'd, um, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Um, this tremendous amount. The greatest age of classical music was tremendous improvisation. Yeah. Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven were all tremendously famous improvisers, and there's a lot of texts that say people thought they were greater as improvisers than as uh, composers. And the basis of this art was, as you say, very strict. I mean, the basis, not to get into figured based, very, very, very strict rules. Um, and um, so I <laughs> uh, just wanted to bring that up. In fact, there are um, just one more thing. The one of the biggest rules, if not the biggest, is you don't have parallel fifths. Uh, and there's a famous story about Beethoven, where in a string quartet he had a whole lot of parallel fifths, and a student said, "You know that's not allowed." And he said, "I allow it." And play. Um, and he kept the fifths in the string quartet because that's what he wanted. Anyway, I thought I'd share that. You wrote. Thank you. Sure. Watch out for parallel fifths. Yeah, do them all the time. <laughs>
Uh, are there any other hands out there? Yes, Sunday. Hi, Hosan. Thank you so much for your beautiful talk. Um, I really resonated uh, with kind of um, the tension between reson uh, being accepting, accepting the moment and aspiring to be a little bit better. Um, I think for me, it's I can kind of play easily when I feel at ease in my body. And it's been, I think, just with my history, um, harder to get to that point with newer people. But I do realize, especially doing MCOS, that I have a safe container within Berkeley Zen Center. So I feel I can be more at ease and connect with folks. Um, and I feel more like a foundation of safety, the more solid our relationships um, become and the more I show up in each moment. Well, that's really, I can't tell you how encouraging that is to me. And that's part of the, that's part of what we've been playing at here for the last years, you know. Uh, and I just, I hope that will continue. And I hope you'll, you and, and, and others uh, continue to feel fine freedom in this space. Anyone else out here? Um, Daniel. By the way, Daniel is just back from being in France for a year. He's here for a couple months. Um, I was wondering about yes and no possibility moments, recognizing them. I often walk by them and have to turn around and see, oh, I just walked by a yes and no. So, um, this is this is functional mindfulness. Functional mindfulness is just simply knowing where you are, and I mean that in a you could look at that in a literal sense, but also to see where where's my mind. So you could start by saying, "Where are my feet?" And if you ask where are your feet, then the next question that's going to flow from that uh, sort of naturally is where's my mind? Uh, and that helps us to bring our attention to the actual space that we are, that we're in, you know, as apart from uh, the hazards of being lost in our thoughts. So bring it down, bring it on down to earth. Where am I standing? How is my body holding itself? And then very naturally, it will reflect on uh, the whole environment that you're in. So I, I, that's my suggestion. Um, is it Ken? Hi, Jose. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, one thing I've noticed is that when I am opening up to engage with someone else, um, it really it changes the conversation if I am speaking from my heart rather than speaking from my ideas of things. Like, I can't tell you how many negotiations often we have over email and stuff like that. And it just feels like it circles around these um, kind of fixed ideas that people have. Um, and I've, I've noticed that when I'm feeling reactive, like that's a, a clue to me to, to stop and to breathe, breathe deeply and pay attention to my breath. And then, 
in that moment, I feel what my heart wants in that moment, and I can express that. And it's usually much more of a completely open invitation to somebody else. Mm -hmm. That's good. Thank you. That's that's helpful. Uh, and it can be your your heart. It can be your belly. Uh, but I think we're talking about uh, what I was just in a way saying to Daniel that that there has to be a physical grounding to it to really, to look. This is why we take we take this maybe a momentary backward step. Uh -huh. And if we're having a really strong blocking or no react, no response, you may have to take a larger backward step and and ask what's what's going on in here, you know, and take that time with the with the intention that. I want to keep playing and I will return, but I need to know what's going on inside me first. So thank you. Maybe one more, if there are any, I see the hand, uh, strikers up. Anyone else in here? Joe. In my experience, when there's play, inevitably someone gets hurt. Was, was that a question at the end? Yeah, do you think that's true? Not necessarily. Uh, you know, uh, this is a risky business being alive. Someone's always getting hurt. And we're going to, we're going to be hurt, we're going to suffer. Uh, but if you don't, if you don't try to play, kind okay, of things are dead. You know, you're you're missing the whole challenge of 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 Zen practice and of life. And um, yeah, people don't always get injured, but it may be that. The risks are, are part of it, and you may you may evaluate the activity and just say, you know what, uh, the risk is worth it. Uh, people do that. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. So thank you all. Let me just say, remind you, uh, as we're doing the Bodhisattva vows. Uh, Lean into vow and lighten up on I, okay? What was the second thing that you wanted to remind us of? Uh, the second thing was I wanted people to turn on their screens. But I can see you. Your screen is on. <laughs> right. Uh, thank you. <laughs>